right, all right. I wonder, uh, I, I wasn't planning on doing this to begin with, but given the last talk with David, which was fantastic, by the way, uh, I am working on a book, and I, I wasn't planning on talking about it, but it feels like the right time to maybe just give it a little bit of publicity. Um, it's called Average Anthropology. <laughs> For those of you who don't think you're the greatest alive, but there's certainly others who are worse. <laughs> Anyways, it's a feel-good novel. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of you, and uh, look for it coming out sometime in the future. I'm kidding. Get Low Anthropology. It's amazing. It's fantastic. I want to introduce myself before I begin. My name is Derek Bledsoe. Uh, I have attended several Mockingbird conferences now, most recently uh, in April in New York City, which was incredible. Saw Jason there, uh, so many familiar faces from there. We were in, uh, it was, I guess, March 7th of 2020, we, we were at the Mockingbird Dallas one-night event, which was roughly seven days before the entire world shut down. Uh, notably, we all ate from a charcuterie board that night. <laughs> I don't think any of us died, which is a good thing. Uh, but I was first introduced to Mockingbird through the Tyler Conference uh, in 2019. My wife and I were first invited here by uh, Tana and Alvaro Agudelo, uh, who are now residents of the Tyler area, but for a long time were members of our church back in Fort Worth. And we were totally blown away by it. Um, I come from the Baptist tradition, and this is unlike anything I had ever experienced. It was a ministry that I did not know I needed until I found it. It was one of the most healing, and honestly, I think the word that I like to, to use more than any other is just life-giving. It's a life-giving ministry uh, that has been so helpful to me personally. As I mentioned, I come from the Baptist tradition. I pastor a Baptist church, although we like to say we're Baptists, we're just not mad about it. Uh, we are a church that believes very deeply that all people are uh, intrinsically broken, uh, that everyone has secrets, things that they are ashamed of, and that the local church of all places in the world ought to be the safest place for them to let go of their secrets and receive the beautiful, never-changing grace of God. And so when we came here, we saw what was happening. We heard some of the speakers, David Zoll, uh, Sarah Condon was there that year, Lee was there, which she's gonna be up here uh, later today. We were just blown away, and so I'm beyond humbled to be here, grateful to both uh, David and Matt for allowing an old Baptist like myself to come up here and share with you. I'm in a strange um, age category, if you will, at this point in my life. I, I think it's that sort of mid-30s to late 40s, it's just a very strange time in the lifespan of a human being. I'm not old enough yet to have really earned the respect of the older people in my church, but I'm not young enough to have the respect of the young people either. <laughs> of course, I'm a millennial, so I'm not used to getting much respect at all um, from anyone. But, but beyond that, I find myself facing a great amount of, of uncertainty. For example, uh, I never thought about dying as a younger man. I, I never thought about it. I would lay in my bed in, in my 20s, I would think about the future, the dreams that I had, or the things that I wanted to accomplish, the man that I would become someday. And I hit 35 years old, and it's like I got into bed one night, and I was like, ah, I'm going to die one day. <laughs> and this sort of weight hit me. And I'm more anxious today than I think I've ever been in my entire life. There's just a great a level of uncertainty that is seemingly trending upward the older 
I get. And, and so for our time today, I, I want to consider the role that uncertainty can play, if we allow it, specifically in the lives of Christians. Uh, uncertainty seems like a bad thing. It seems like a sort of an anxiety-inducing reality that, that we are sometimes faced with. But I've noticed something strange, that over the course of the last few years, as I grow in my anxiety about the uncertainty of life, I also grow in my confidence of God's grace. And so I've titled my talk, What the Hevel is Going On? How Uncertainty is Fertile Ground for Reaping Grace. I believe that actually uncertainty is a very powerful place to experience the grace of God because I'm more or less forced to in that moment. I don't really have a choice in the matter. At least that's the sense that I get when I read the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a part of uh, the wisdom literature, if you will, of the Old Testament. The name says it all, wisdom. It's wisdom for living. Uh, if you're not familiar with this genre of scripture from the Old Testament, I wanna give you a helpful way to remember these three uh, great little books in the Old Testament. I like to think of the three books uh, as, as sort of likened to three of the great sages uh, of our generation and the generation past, all of whom, incidentally, are named Fred. Um, most practical and probably the most popular of the three is uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs, we're all very familiar with Proverbs, a great morning, quiet time, although I'm not supposed to do quiet time anymore, according to Tish. I'm, I'm working on that. Um, <laughs> It's a very practical, it's a very uplifting book. And so if you want to remember Proverbs, like what is Proverbs really about? All you need to think about is the near saint, Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers. Uh, Proverbs is really all about choices, uh, the choices that you make in life. And it was Fred Rogers who reminded us, you rarely have time for everything you want in this life, so you need to make choices. That's really what Proverbs is about. Make wise choices and receive blessing, or make foolish choices and live with the con uh, consequences. The second book is uh, Ecclesiastes, which is where we're gonna be spending most of our time today. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. It doesn't really care about the choices that you make. It's not very concerned with that at all. Uh, it's very concerned with just the unfair circumstances you are likely going to face in your life. And so, to remember this book, what is Ecclesiastes all about? We need think no further than the ever-inspiring Freddie Mercury, who really captures, I think, the spirit of this book when he said, nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Yeah, there we go. My brothers, amen. And then, of course, the last one is uh, Job. And most of us, I think, are probably pretty familiar with this one. Uh, a man who experiences just untold painful loss after loss, just can't seem to catch a break. Everything goes wrong again and again. Honestly, a very frustrating story to read. And I think his experience is expressed by none other than the great poet, Fred Durst, who once said, if my day keeps going this way, I just might break something tonight. So to recap, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. If you've ever been to a Baptist Bible study, this is basically everything you will never hear in one. Um, of course, many of you are Episcopalian. You will never attend a Baptist Bible study because uh, you'll never attend any Bible study, right? Uh, it was low-hanging fruit. I, I had to. I had to. I'm sorry. Low anthropology. Our topic for the weekend, reaping grace. I'm convinced that 
that Ecclesiastes presents this notion that the reality of uncertainty, and I'm going to call it that, a reality and not a feeling, that the reality of uncertainty can actually become fertile ground from which we reap God's grace. Ecclesiastes is this often avoided book of the Bible, especially in evangelical circles, because it simply uh, is uncomfortable to read. It, it says things that we really don't know how to make sense of it. it. It doesn't have a happy ending like Job. It's not optimistic like Proverbs. It, it rather recognizes the complexity and the nuance of life, and it forces us to come to terms with it. Everything, it says, is outside of our control, and because of that, there's no guarantee for anything and thus everything in our life is ultimately uncertain. And this book begins, perhaps, with the most confusing passage of the entire thing, mainly because of how contradictory it seems to us. It says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. This is the voice of the teacher or the preacher, depending on what translation you're reading, who is one of the two voices of Ecclesiastes. And, and if we're just being honest, a verse like this, it's not, what we're, it's not what we're expecting to find in the Bible. Christians don't have meaningless lives. Life is meaningful. Life is full of purpose, right? Purpose-driven life. And this is the thing that we, we, we cling on to. This sounds more like Nietzsche than the Bible. But what if we're misunderstanding what this word means, meaningless? What if the teacher was trying to say something else to us? Uh, this word, meaningless, in the Hebrew, it's the word hevel, it's a word that quite literally just means vapor or smoke. So, so what he's saying is not that life is meaningless in some kind of existential way, but that it's very hard to comprehend. Life is confusing. It's like smoke. It's in a constant state of change. Its shape continues to move and transform. You can never really make sense of, of what it looks like. And it, it looks solid, but when you try to grab it, it, it dissipates through your fingers. You can never quite get a hold of it. When you're standing in the midst of it, it's disorienting. You can never figure out which way is which. And even worse, it's, it's extremely short-lived. It's there one moment, it's gone the next. The teacher is saying not that life is meaningless, but that life is very confusing. It's, it's hard to comprehend it. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. It's like vapor or smoke. It's hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. And when you understand this theme, everything in the book makes a lot more sense. He's going to say a lot of things, again, that, that sort of make us uncomfortable. He says things like, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing innovative, so stop trying to be innovative. You're going to fail. He's going to say things like, man has no advantage over animals because both men and animals live and die, and no one remembers them. He talks about how he's observed the world around him. He's noticed how the world is often very unpredictable. Sometimes things don't go the way we think they should go. He says, for example, that the strongest warriors don't always win the fights that the fastest runners don't always win the races, that the most intelligent people don't always figure out the mysteries of life. Ecclesiastes 9, he begins to talk about death and how death is impartial. It holds no account or record against anyone above anyone else. He says that death comes for the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. In other words, it doesn't really matter what kind of life you live or how much money you make or how successful you are. Death comes for everyone. No one is exempt. No one escapes it unless you possess the deathly hallows and then you, death can't find you because of the invisibility cloak and you become the, the most powerful wizard on, on earth anyways. No Harry Potter fans in here, really? I, mean, I, I, thought that would, I thought that would land a little bit more. 
Death comes for everyone. It's like the Flaming Lips famously once said, do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? Ecclesiastes paints a, if we're being honest, pretty grim picture of reality, albeit a very realistic view of reality. But when we go back and we remember the theme of the book, life is like vapor or smoke, all of these ideas, these grim images coalesce into one sort of main idea. I think we could summarize the book of Ecclesiastes into one statement. Here it is, that life is uncertain, so live in the moment. That's really it. Life is uncertain, so live in the moment. There's nothing new under the sun, so stop wasting your time thinking about hypotheticals. Simply embrace the moment while you can, because eventually you, like everyone else, will die. That's really the big idea. Nothing is certain. Nothing is guaranteed. You have no control. All you can do is live in the now. Now, that message is something I think we can connect to. It's very similar, for example, to the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step one of the 12 steps says that we admitted we were powerless over, in this context, alcohol, but really in any context, it could be anything, life. We admitted that we were powerless over life and that our lives had become unmanageable. Life is unmanageable. It's uncertain. It's unpredictable. And I am powerless over it. My only shot is admitting that and just living in the moment that I have right now because I'm not guaranteed anything beyond that. This is consistent with the the New Testament as well. Jesus said it this way, don't be anxious about tomorrow. (laughs) He's checking in on us, right? For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Don't, Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Live right now in the moment, right here in the present. Jesus' half brother James said something very similar. He says in James 4, 13 and 14, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Listen to this. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Did you get that? Tomorrow is not guaranteed because your life is hevel. It's vapor, it's mist, so don't plan on tomorrow because all you have is the present. John the Apostle said something very similar as well. He said, carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. (laughs) Just kidding, that was John Keating who said that. (laughs) Yeah, the English teacher at Welton Academy, the 1989 cult classic, Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, I want to talk about that for a moment because it illustrates, I think, something really important. How many of you have seen Dead Poets Society? Hopefully all of you. It's a tragedy if you haven't. It it really illustrates, I think, the difference between a life that embraces uncertainty as a good thing and a life that insists on maintaining this sort of self-power or self-control. One of the reasons I, I think that we love movies like this so much is because the spirit of John Keating resonates so deeply with us. There's a kind of freedom in it, right? It's also why we hate the sort of antagonist of the movie, the rigid law of Mr. Perry, the father of Neil Perry, a student at Welton Academy as well. Keating and Perry are are, are sort of opposites of one another in the movie. Keating encourages his students to sort of embrace this this freedom found in uncertainty, to live in the moment, to seize the day. And Mr. Perry, on the other hand, he's hell-bent on controlling both the present and the future of his son. He's got all of his classes selected. He will go to Harvard Law after everything is over with. He will become a lawyer. There will be no mistakes. 
And, and so they're, they're interesting opposites as you watch this movie. Keating's message is to embrace uncertainty and live in the moment, and it's invigorating to the boys that he teaches. It leads to this grace and life that they want more and more of. Perry's message, on the other hand, of control and perfection leads to law and quite literally death in the death of his son. My contention, I think, is that, that when we embrace the message of Ecclesiastes and Alcoholics Anonymous and James and John Keating and ultimately the Lord, when I embrace the conviction that life is uncertain and all I have is right now, it is more than anything one of the most freeing and grace-filled places that I can live because unlike the need for certainty where everything becomes a law to live or die by, when I am uncertain, I no longer have any expectations of how I think things should go or how I think people should act. It actually forces me into what Dave calls a low anthropology. It releases me from the expectations that I have for other people. It's hard to expect much of anything from anyone when nothing is for certain. So it moves me into this place of being much more gracious towards not only myself but others around me. It frees me from the demands of my own self-righteousness and that's not to say that I should never have plans or goals or, or strive towards anything that I believe the Lord is leading me to, but it means doing so with the full confidence that it might not come to pass the way I think it should because life is hevel, and so I need to accept that. Now, with that said, it's not easy. As it turns out, there is a, psycho, a psychology to uncertainty as well uh, that, that suggests that we are not naturally able to embrace this well. So there was a recent study out of Georgetown that said in a simulation game of rewards and punishments, uh, participants who had a 50-50 chance of receiving a painful electrical shock experienced significantly more stress than those who knew for certain they would be shocked. Understand what that means for a minute. That means that the anticipation of bad things that you might experience is more stressful, psychologically worse for you than bad things you know you will experience. Beyond that, it's mentally fatiguing. Dr. Uh, Waif O'Donovan, associate professor of psychiatry at UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences, said this, uncertainty means ambiguity which means that we have to expend effort in trying to predict what will happen in addition to preparing to deal with all of the different outcomes. So, so when I'm confronted with uncertainty in my life, someone mentioned Dr. Strange earlier, I'm like Dr. Strange with the time stone, where you're like considering every single possible outcome and every reality, right? It's just exhausting, it's, it's mentally fatiguing. But this is why we love the law so much. It's why we're addicted to it. We, we love to believe the lie that we're actually in control of things. That if I can just sort of trace out how I am to live and, and everything will work out well and, and, and God will, will accept me and love me and bless me and I can do all these things, then, then I, I'm good and I can live by that. And it's crushing, but, but I, I prefer that over anything else. When I was 17 years old, I, uh, I went on a 10-day uh, whitewater rafting trip down the Middle Fork River. Uh, this is in Idaho. It, it's, it's unspeakably beautiful. I mean, just the hand of God at work in creation. A 10-day whitewater rafting trip. Myself, my siblings, my family, and a couple of extended family. I'm convinced my parents were drug dealers. I don't know how they paid for... <laughs> I don't know how they paid for it. I just got back from Disneyland on Thursday with our three kids, and I am probably going to have to sell my kidney on the black market to pay it off. 
This was insane. I mean, it, it was guided by professionals. There were meals prepared, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every day when we arrived at sort of our final destination for that day, the tents were already set up. I'm telling you, cartel. My parents were cartel. <laughs> it was an amazing trip. Yeah, at first, it was very intimidating for all of us. Uh, none of us had ever been whitewater rafting. Uh, by day two or three, there was probably 20 or 30 of us in the whole party. Uh, you know, we were very comfortable. We, we'd sort of, after hours and hours for a couple of days doing it, we, we felt a little more prepared for what lied ahead. And, and so, it was probably around day three or four. I don't remember exactly. They opened up the option to get out of the big, safe, professionally guided whitewater raft, and into a kayak by yourself. And me being the 17-year-old with exceedingly high anthropology, um, I believed I was made for this moment. I could hear the, the, the words of Ruth, for you were appointed for such a time as this. I, I, I was born to be a kayaker. And so I volunteered as tribute. And uh, before I was allowed to go, we had to do training. I mean, as you would expect, you're getting into a kayak in class four and five rapids. I forgot to mention that. I mean, these were serious rapids. So you gotta do some training. Here's how the training went in Idaho in around 2003. Don't fall in, but if you do fall in, let go of the paddle. That was it, that was the extent of the training. And off we went. And for the first few hours, I did so well. I mean, I exceeded all expectations of myself, which were, by the way, very high. And I loved it. I, I thought it was so invigorating. And then we approached a rapid that the locals referred to as one of two. It was a monster of a rapid. Uh, I'm not exaggerating this. Top to bottom, from, from the top of the rapid down to the, the bottom part of it, it was the length of two school buses. It was massive nearly equally tall going back up. I mean, just a monster of a rapid. And as we approached it, the instructor in the large raft ahead of me yells out, we're about to go down one of two. Now, it only takes an elementary amount of reasoning to figure out what one of two might mean. <laughs> For me, a reasonable person, assumed that the first rapid that we were about to go down was a set of two rapids, one of two. We're about to go down one of two, and then shortly after that, we're gonna go down two of two, right? I mean, this is, I'm not alone in thinking this. But that's not what the name meant. One of two indicated that for every two people that go down the rapid, only one comes up. Now, given that I'm telling you this story <laughs> in a talk about uncertainty, I'm going to let you guess which side of fate I fell into. <laughs> I got to the bottom of the rapid, and I immediately flipped. I was pulled underwater, life jacket and all, and pulled directly underwater into an undertow. And I began spinning. I don't remember much during that time. I, I don't recall much. I remember opening my eyes several times, which helped none. Uh, it probably only made me more anxious, honestly, because I was spinning so fast. I didn't know which way was which or which, and, and, and I wasn't a very religious person at this time. I didn't come to faith until later in my life, but, but I can tell you, uh, as a non-religious individual, I was very open to it at this point. <laughs> I thought, 
I thought I was gonna die. I, I thought, in fact, I thought I was dead. I thought, this is how it ends. And, and in that moment, uh, honest to God, I gave up. I stopped fighting, and I just resigned myself to the reality that I'm gonna be this tragic story, the 17-year-old kid, hasn't even graduated high school, on this extraordinarily expensive trip, probably, that, um, that drowns. And, uh, and I, I gave up fighting, and the moment I stopped, I was released from it and popped back up. And I was laying there on my back, and, and I just kind of looking up at the sky, and probably in a lot of shock at this point. And into my view comes the instructor on the, on the large raft, and he looks down at me and goes, I told you to let go of the paddle. <laughs> I was gripping it, right, with, with all my might. And this, I think, was a very defining moment for me. I still think about it 20 years later. I was flung into the middle of uncertainty, literally spinning to my death. And even in my most dire moment, I was determined with all of my might to cling on to control. It's what we do in these moments. We want law, we want control, we want certainty, even if it means death before freedom. Now, I believe deeply that the advantage of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that while humanity as a whole is forced into the uncertainty of life, and I do believe that, uh, you know, Tish talked about the, the, the sort of like worldview arc of creation, fall, redemption. This fall cannot be overstated how, how much havoc it wreaks on our everyday lives. And, and so while I, I believe firmly that humanity is forced into the uncertainty of life at a micro level, that Christians who believe the gospel are afforded great certainty at a macro level. That this eternal life that was talked about last night as well, of, of knowing God, gives us something that the world does not offer in a life of uncertainty. Of knowing the one who knows no uncertainty. Of resting in the certainty of his goodness and his faithfulness to me, even when I am not good or faithful. And so while I have no idea what each day will bring me, I have no idea if tomorrow will even come, I can actually live with great confidence ultimately that the Lord of hosts does and that he goes before me and that he has condescended to human flesh to die in my place. And so I have either a choice to either continue to manufacture certainty through this illusion of self-power that, that we are so committed to or... I can embrace the reality of uncertainty and admit that I'm powerless over it and live in that moment by faith. And it's Paul, the apostle, who reminds us that through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, what he's saying is that, that faith in a moment-by-moment -moment life is the vessel through which we enter into God's grace. And so in a very real sense, faith in uncertainty is a means by which I experience the grace of God. So my prayer for you is, would he grant you faith? That when your life begins to fall apart, when you have more questions than answers, when you are utterly uncertain about your future, that by faith you might know Jesus more deeply and reap the riches of his grace. Thank you.